Scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 8, reading verses 1 through 15. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Let my people go, that they may serve me. And if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all of your borders with frogs. And the river shall swarm with frogs that shall go up and come into your house and into your bedchamber and upon your bed and into the house of your servants and upon your people and into your ovens and into your kneading troughs. And upon you and upon your people and upon all your servants shall the frogs come up. And Yahweh said to Moses, say to Aaron, Stretch forth your hand with your rod over the rivers, over the streams, and over the pools, and cause frogs to come up upon the land of Egypt. And Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did in like manner with their secret arts and brought up frogs upon the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat Yahweh that he take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go, that they may sacrifice to Yahweh. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Have this glory over me. For what time shall I entreat for you and for your servants and for your people to cut off the frogs from you and your houses? Only in the river shall they remain. And he said, For tomorrow. And he said, be it according to your word, that you may know that there is none like Yahweh our God. And the frogs shall depart from you, and from your houses, and from your servants, and from your people. Only in the river shall they remain. And Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. And Moses cried out to Yahweh concerning the frogs that he had brought upon Pharaoh. And Yahweh did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courts, and out of the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw there was respite, he hardened his heart and did not hearken to them as Yahweh had spoken. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. We pray that your spirit would help to direct us in the truth this day, as is found from Exodus chapter 8. May you grant us strength for this. May you direct our faith to Christ, our Savior and King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Frogs. Some people, they're cute green creatures. Others probably don't care for them as much. Some of you probably dissected a frog in a biology class at some point in your schooling. In the 80s, the game Frogger was pretty popular which you might remember was when you tried to get the, the digital frog across a stream, pond, busy street, uh, or busy street while trying to avoid the various hazards in order to not get eaten, squashed, or splatted in some form or fashion. Seinfeld fans might recall the Frogger episode in which George becomes obsessed with preserving his high score on a Frogger arcade game, ending in a somewhat hilarious and typical George Costanza fashion. There are activities such as frog gigging. Frog legs are a delicacy in some parts of the U.S. Kermit the Frog is certainly iconic in our culture. And there's the frog from frog, the Frog and Toad books. Well, for all that is familiar to us about frogs, the Bible mentions them very little. Apart from the concentration of usage here in Exodus 8, 
Frogs are mentioned only other uh, only three other times in Scripture. Two times in the Psalms, both of which are in reference back to this event, and then in Revelation 16. That's it. Seems reasonable to conclude that frogs were created on the fifth day of creation as part of the swarms of living creatures associated with the waters. Of course, in our modern classification, they're amphibians, inhabiting water and land. Uh, Though staying moist is crucial for their survival and their ability to breathe through their skin. Well, having considered the first plague of the Nile and other water sources turning to blood a couple of weeks ago, which largely acted as a warning and was largely one of inconvenience, today we come to this second plague, which also mainly falls under the category of warning and was a great nuisance um, and not necessarily deadly. And remember that there are three cycles of plagues through the first nine plagues, moving from water to land to heaven or sky, reflecting the triple-decker universe God has made. And that plagues 1, 4, and 7 are all introduced as taking place in the morning or early in the morning when Moses is instructed to go and see Pharaoh. Well, in similar fashion, there is an introductory formula for plagues 2, 5, and 8. With Yahweh's simple and direct command, go to Pharaoh. And that's where our text begins this morning. So let's, let's begin to make our way through it, considering some of the literary clues as we go and what bearing it has for our faith, both in exhortation and encouragement. Verse 1, And said Yahweh to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Send out my people, and they may serve me. This is fairly straightforward, uh, beginning to the message, and one that we've heard before, previously in chapter 5 and verse 1, and chapter 7 and verse 16. And here's the third of seven uses of this directive to Pharaoh to, to send out Israel that they may serve, that they may worship Yahweh in the wilderness. And this brings back the question, to whom do the Israelites belong? You know, whose servants are they? Yahweh's or Pharaoh's? Yahweh's clearly making a claim here, continuing to establish himself and the authority he has to make this demand. And then in verses 2 through 4, Yahweh's message to Pharaoh through Moses clearly delineates what's going to happen if Pharaoh doesn't send out Israel. And if you refuse to send out, behold, I will smite all of your territory with frogs, and the Nile, the, the river, will swarm with frogs, and they shall ascend and come into your house, and into the room of your lying down, and upon your bed, and into the house of your servants, and upon your people, and into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. And on you and on your people and upon all your servants shall ascend the frogs. So the the second plague is clearly frogs. And the word for frogs, the word frogs is used ten times in verses 1 through 15. And the way that the text is written, the way that the the narrative is being portrayed, it's as if there's there's going to be an invasion of frogs. You, You can just picture it. You know, they, they come up out of the Nile, out of the river, and make their way everywhere and seemingly into everything. And there's going to be no escape. You know, the Egyptians wouldn't even be able to find respite in their bedrooms, in the sleeping chambers. No, the frogs will be there too. And the text is clear that Pharaoh will be affected. His servants, his official, officials will be affected, and even all his people. Now, one question that we do well to ask is, why frogs? 
Well, in past weeks we established that Yahweh is bringing judgment against the gods of Egypt, against uh, Egypt's idolatry. And although it can be challenging to correlate a single god to each plague, and isn't necessarily necessary, uh, given how many they had, and remember that the, the big three uh, were the Nile, Pharaoh, and the sun. However, the Egyptians regarded the frog as a symbol of divine power and representation of fertility. One of the main goddesses of Egypt was Hecate, who was depicted as a female with a frog's head. So the Egyptians generally liked frogs, and since frogs represented fertility, then the presence of frogs meant good crops and, and so forth and so on. But this also connects to the Nile. And we need to understand a little bit about the geography of Egypt and the importance of the Nile to their way of life. Now, as many of you know, Egypt is located in northeast Africa. To the north is the Mediterranean Sea, the Great Sea. And to the east is the Red Sea. To the west is Libya. And to the south is Sudan. And to the southeast, Ethiopia. Well, one of the key things to understand about Egypt is that 96% of Egypt is desert with only 4% as usable land. And 99% of the population lives in that 4%. The portion that is inhabitable is largely along the Nile River, and the amount of rainfall in Egypt is largely negligible. However, on an annual basis, an inundation takes place, which is when the Nile floods its banks on account of water coming from the south, from Lake Victoria, and, and snow melting from the mountain regions of Ethiopia and South Sudan. And this flooding then leaves a deposit of, of red silt or mud that provides a rich soil uh, for their crops to, to, to be cultivated and grown in. And with the flood waters and mud, what else would naturally appear? Well, frogs, which again, to the Egyptians, would have been a good thing, a sign of prosperity, and in keeping with the annual cycle of their ecosystem and, and way of life. But what's going to happen to the Egyptians, and what do we read about taking place? Well, there are too many frogs. What might that indicate? Well, in part, Yahweh's sense of humor. You know, if, if they like frogs so much, then he's basically saying, here you go, have some frogs. But even more, it indicates his judgment on their idolatry. And how does the judgment come? By giving them what they want. You know, that's how God judges people. Now, something else that's interesting to note in these first few verses is that the frogs will even make it into their ovens and kneading bowls. Now, why those details? Is it just to express that they'll basically be found everywhere? Well, perhaps, but details in the Bible aren't superfluous. The Holy Spirit chooses which ones to include and which ones to omit. So why ovens and kneading bowls? Well, on one level, frogs like moist, wet, uh, and muddy areas and not dry ones. An oven is hardly a place fitting for a frog to inhabit. Similarly, a kneading bowl, a tool used to help make bread, isn't a likely place for a frog to be either. Again, is the point just to say that they'll be everywhere, disrupting the normal course of life? Well, that certainly may be part of it. But if you think back to our study of the life of Joseph, and particularly Genesis chapter 40, and the story of the chief baker and the cupbearer who were imprisoned with Joseph... What do we learn about these royal officials, particularly the baker? Now, while he may have been an actual baker, as we think, it's more likely that he held an official position in the king's court and was something like the secretary of agriculture. In that day and time, Egypt produced a tremendous amount of bread. 
See, Egypt was a bread basket, uh, even as later chapters reveal, when all the world comes to them for grain during the famine, as Joseph said. Well, of course, you make bread out of grain. Still more, Egypt had some 50 to 60 different types of bread that they made and had discovered yeast and how to use it in baking their bread, and it was an intensely guarded secret. So very, this, very likely, this baker not only supervised bread baking, but also was responsible for overseeing the grain crops, what was planted and harvested, and, and, and was responsible for ensuring that the secret about yeast was kept. So then how does that inform us about what's happening in relation to plague number two? Well, the frogs are going to be in the ovens. And what do you use an oven for? Well, to baking, and particularly baking bread. What's a kneading bowl needed for? Kneading the bread, that's to be baked. So part of the picture here seems to be that Egypt's uh, main identity is the breadbasket of the world, a source of national pride even, is going to come to a screeching halt or at least become uh, more complicated because the frogs are going to greatly hinder all of the baking that needs to take place. Now again, part of, part of Egypt's, na- Egypt's national identity is coming under attack, as it were. And I can't help but think that there's, there's also humor in this too. You know, all the people, all the households will be affected, not being able to produce the necessary bread to eat, or at least not being able to produce it as conveniently as before. Of course, the Egyptians had other sources of food, and this plague still falls under the category largely of inconvenience, uh, by and large. But imagine trying to make bread and a frog is jumping into the dough. Or say you're trying to get the oven heated up and ready, but you have to clean out the oven first from frogs, or, they, or even that they, they jump in while you're trying to bake. Yeah, that would be pretty stressful after a while. A huge hassle and frog flambe might not make for a delectable aroma. So all of that is what Moses is to give to Pharaoh as a fair warning. But then notice something that the text doesn't tell us. It doesn't recount Moses and Aaron actually delivering the message or Pharaoh's reaction. What do we read in verses 5 and 6? And said Yahweh to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod upon the streams and upon the rivers and upon the pools and cause to ascend the frogs upon the land of Egypt. And Aaron stretched out his hand upon the waters of Egypt and ascended the frog and covered the land of Egypt. As one scholar puts it, the narrator jumps directly from Yahweh's instructions to to their fulfillment by Aaron. Details of Moses' encounter with Pharaoh have been deliberately omitted as redundant. The omission has a rhetorical function, as if the narrator were saying, I won't even bother reporting the actual delivery of the message in Pharaoh's response. You know he didn't listen. So Aaron stretches out his hand with his rod in it. He is the one who also does this second plague, the second wonder. Remember that Aaron is the primary doer of the first cycle of plagues. And then we read in verse 7, And did thus the magicians, by their secret arts, and caused to ascend the frogs upon the land of Egypt. So there's also a sense here that we have a competing, we have competing priesthoods or competing stewards. You know, Aaron serves as a steward to Moses, and these magicians serve in similar fashion to Pharaoh. And we're also seeing the continuing competition between God and the demonic. But notice once again that the Egyptian magicians simply make things worse by causing more frogs to come upon the land of Egypt, which is also funny to a degree. And also notice what they can't do. They can't cause the frogs to go away. They clearly can't get rid of them. 
you know, we think the most intelligent thing to do would be to try to get rid of the frogs, but they don't and they can't. Now, a couple of other details to focus on in these few verses. First, in verse 6, the text literally says Aaron's actions caused the frog, singular, to ascend. Now, it's likely using frog in a collective sense, but this is not one of the ten uses of frogs, plural, mentioned a few minutes ago. It might be stretching things too far, but perhaps the use of the singular is an allusion to their idolatrous God who comes upon their land in Egypt in judgment and not in prosperity, tying into the theme we established earlier. You know, similar to Tash making a somewhat unexpected appearance in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, perhaps there's something to that going on here. Second, notice the sudden emphasis upon the land of Egypt in verses 5, 6, and 7. Three times in three verses, reference is specifically made to the land of Egypt in relation to the plague. Why is that significant? Well, you already know. Because this is the land plague that comes as the second plague in this first cycle of the first three plagues. But then there's a decided change in the rhythm of the text, we might say, when we come to verse 8. What do we read taking place there? And called Pharaoh to Moses and to Aaron, and he said, Entreat unto Yahweh, and he caused to turn aside the frogs from me and from my people, and I will send out the people to sacrifice to Yahweh. Now, what was Pharaoh's previous posture toward Yahweh? Now, who is Yahweh? I don't know him. Why should I listen to him? But now he's calling on Moses and Aaron to play the part of intercessor, to, to pray to Yahweh on his behalf to get rid of the frogs. Implicit to Pharaoh's request is an acknowledgement that Yahweh is the only one who can deal with Egypt's frog epidemic. Moses' response in verse 9 is slightly debated, and the wording varies among translations, and whether or not Moses is suddenly optimistic that Pharaoh will relent can come into play here in some scholars' minds. But Moses says to Pharaoh, glorify yourself over me, which I think we should take as Moses showing deference to Pharaoh, putting himself in a position of humility before the king of Egypt. Now, even though he's a tyrant, there's a sense that Moses is still showing him a degree of honor. So Moses is basically saying, you you have the place of honor. You tell me when I am to entreat for you and for your servants and for your people to cause to be cut off the frogs from you and from your houses and only in the Nile remain. So Pharaoh gets to set the time for the frog invasion to cease and for the frogs to be in their proper place in the river. And what does he decide? What does he tell Moses in verse 10? Tomorrow. Now that response is interesting, isn't it? Why didn't Pharaoh say today or right now? Some speculate that it gives him some plausible deniability that he'd possibly attribute the plague stopping for another reason. Could be. But even if that's in the back of his mind, Moses doesn't give him any wiggle room when he replies, according to your word, so that you may know that there is no one as Yahweh our God. The frog shall turn aside from you and from your houses and from your servants and from your people. Only in the Nile shall they remain. Notice how verse 11 basically repeats verse 9. But Moses is clear to state that the sobbing of the plague can only be attributed to Yahweh that Pharaoh may know that there is no other God. And surely you hear that common thread and theme of knowing that's so significant to these chapters, even as we've established in past weeks. And then what do we read next? And went out Moses and Aaron from Pharaoh, 
And Moses cried out to Yahweh about the word of the frogs, which he had put on Pharaoh. And Yahweh did according to the word of Moses and died the frogs from the houses and from the courtyards and from the fields. Now, something that gets a little bit lost in translation is the fact that in verse 12, references made uh, to literally is literally made to the word of the frogs, which is a way to reference the plague spoken against Pharaoh. Moses delivered this word to Pharaoh and the plague happened. And then in verse 13, there's reference to Yahweh acting according to the word of Moses and the plague ceasing. That's a little thing, even a subtle literary point, but interesting to consider and adds a bit more nuance to the manner in which the text is written. Also, there seems to be a repetition of threes or fours here and there after a fashion. You know, there's the departure of the frogs from you, your servants, and your people in verse 9, 3. Then in verse 11, Moses says, from you, your houses, your servants, and your people, 4. Houses being included in this list. Then in verse 13, we read that the frogs died in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. That's another three. And notice the proximity from uh, from house, which would mean, of course, in the house, to the courtyard, which would be an area outside of the house, and then the field, which is farther out still. There may even be a subtle allusion to the three zones of the world, of, of sanctuary, garden, land, and world, which then we'd later see the sanctuary garden of the temple, God's house, and then the land of Israel, and then the wider world. So perhaps a subtle literary way of representing the judgment that comes upon every area of the land of Egypt. And the text seems to give us the impression that these frogs, they died instantly. You know, and try to imagine what that would be like. You know, you're having to, to deal with these riveting frogs, and frogs are nocturnal creatures, which means they're what? They're active and noisier at night. Now, certainly sleep was pretty hard to come by uh, for the duration of this plague, which we don't know how long it lasted, though perhaps a week. But, but imagine all these frogs, and then they're suddenly lifeless and silent. What do you have to do with them? Oh, collect them. You know, how would you like that job of hauling dead frogs out of the houses? And what does the text tell us then in verse 14? And they gathered them heaps of heaps and stank the land. So you've got these mounds of dead frogs everywhere, and of course they're going to rot. And then what a marvelous expression at the end of verse 14, and stank the land. You know, that almost sounds like a heavy metal album title or something. But, but, but you can probably guess that the word for stank is the same word rendered odious or stink back in chapter 5 and verse 21, when the Israelite foremen were upset with Moses and Aaron for causing trouble for them. It's also used twice in chapter 7 in reference to the fish dying when the Nile is turned to blood, causing the Nile to stink. So in the first plague, the river stinks, and now in the second plague, the land stinks. And that's a pretty good metaphor for where idolatry leads, doesn't it? It causes life to stink. Life stinks has been a popular expression in our culture from time to time, but it's certainly true when your life is governed by idols. Well, finally, in verse 15, we're not surprised to read, And Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, and caused to be heavy his heart, and he did not listen to them, as spoke Yahweh. So there are three verbs associated with Pharaoh. He saw, so he made a judgment with his eyes. The frog invasion ceased, and once that was achieved, his heart was further caused to be heavy. It's one of the three groups of words associated with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And thirdly, he wouldn't hear. He wouldn't listen. 
there's a sense that he's deaf, that there's this incalcitrant uh, refusal to heed Moses and Aaron, which is true on account of his idolatry. And this sets us up for the third plague, which we'll hopefully consider next week. But what are some further implications of the text of, of this account of the second plague for us today? Well, first of all, consider how Moses' demeanor toward Pharaoh of showing him deference can instruct us in our own approach and attitude toward rulers and magistrates in our day and time. And there's still a measure of respect that Moses shows even to this king of Egypt who's a tyrant. And since we know that all magistrates are appointed by God, the good ones and the bad ones, then that means we can still treat them with a measure of respect because we know that Jesus has put them there. And as John Calvin so capably points out in his institutes, that bad rulers can be a source of discipline and chastisement for his people, for God's people, and that if we find ourselves under such a ruler, to be humble first and to implore the Lord for help. Now, of course, this doesn't mean uh, we're simply doormats and anything goes, or that those who rule over us are above criticism or rebuke. Certainly not. But as believers, we don't use the same means as the world. We do not act in the same way, even as James so capably argues in his letter. You know, we're, we're not revolutionaries as the world defines revolutionaries. However, we are revolutionaries in the sense as the Bible defines it. And that we want everything that is opposed to Christ overthrown. But that doesn't come about in a worldly way. That doesn't come through our own strength or cunning or plotting or rebelling through violence. And according to Paul in Colossians 2, how did God disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame? By way of Jesus on the cross. Well, in similar fashion, we follow Jesus in the way of the cross. You know, we are, we are revolutionaries in the biblical sense through worship, through acts of mercy and love, through living in antithesis to a world, to a culture given over to its idols, which is a culture given over to death. Yes, there are times for resistance through lesser magistrates, through the correct means, but we don't take vengeance upon ourselves. That's for the Lord to mete out. And as mentioned in past weeks, this doesn't mean that the church isn't to have a prophetic voice, that the church just, you know, just needs to let everything go. On the contrary, you know, we can be perfectly straightforward in calling magistrates to repentance and telling them what Christ requires of them and even appropriately ridicule their idolatry. And just think of Elijah's example on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Well, there's a certain demeanor, a certain calm humility that undergirds our attitudes and actions toward those who have been placed in authority over us. Second, consider that it's still true that God gives people over to their idols. As Lady Wisdom declares in Proverbs 8, For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. See, idolatry is foolishness. And it's a given that you become like what you worship as the scriptures tell us in a number of places. When you worship idols, you become blind, deaf, and dumb. Furthermore, idolatry and its effects causes life to stink. You know, the Bible also has plenty to say about smells and aromas, and the aroma of the gospel is to permeate ours. Granted, that might not smell good to those who are perishing, and is even a fragrance from death to death, but to those who are being saved, a fragrance from life to life. And from time to time, it's, it's good for us to ask ourselves, well, what does my life smell like right now? You know, what's the aroma of my home? Is it pleasant? Is it pleasing? Or does it stink? 
And if it stinks, why? Well, maybe there's some idolatry that needs to be dealt with. And the idolatry can take many forms, whether it's an obsession with a particular object or activity, another person, or even yourself. Maybe you're just selfish and worshiping yourself, and that's causing a stink to everyone around you, particularly your spouse and children. To properly deal with the idolatry, repent and confess, and get rid of the stink. Of course, we should understand that doesn't mean that there aren't hardships, because there certainly are, and maybe we think life stinks on account of things being difficult, on account of the multicolored trials which we fall into, but those we are to consider as joy, because they're being used to make us more mature for the purpose of making us more like Christ. But that's not what is mainly in view here. But a, but a casting away of those things which are hindering the gaze of our faith upon Christ, of living in obedience to His Word, of following after Him in the way in which He's trailblazed for us, even, put, even putting off the old and putting on the new. Third and lastly, as the frogs mentioned in Revelation 16 are associated with false doctrines, with demonic teaching, so we need to be aware of such in our own culture, even the manner in which they inhabit our culture, permeating, well, pretty much everything. You know, the frogs in Egypt were everywhere, even in houses, bedrooms, ovens, and kneading bowls. You know, Egypt was demon-inhabited, we might say. Well, certainly there's plenty of demonic teaching in our society at present, whether literally or in the guise of a pseudo-righteousness or a pseudo-righteous cause, and we shouldn't be naive about it. You know, maybe we think we're under invasion of frogs. But we need not despair, but be all the more resolved in our faith to cling to the gospel, which proclaims the only true and living God, the Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, and the life-giving Holy Spirit, the triune God who would have us to pursue truth, beauty, and goodness as defined by His Word. And we actively and purposefully train our children in the same. That they might properly see the world which God has made, which Christ has redeemed, and which the Spirit is renewing, even as they too take their place in the high and holy calling that is ours as the church, as servants of God. We live as free people, zealous for what is good, ever standing at the ready to give a defense for the reason for the hope that is in us with gentleness and respect, even in, and especially in, days like these. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that Christ is triumphant over the principalities and powers, that he is triumphant over sin and death. We thank you for life and health and strength, for the life which you have called us to in the gospel according to your word. And direct us by faith in that life. And may we live it fully and to your glory and for your honor and for the sake of your church and kingdom. Indeed, may we be your faithful servants in this world and in service to the world, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.